The picture from 1995 by Olafur Eliasson, Iceland series, actually has something that also belongs to me. The first time I was in Iceland was in late 90s when I did my first short film there. The open sky, open air, vast horizon. It has underground bubbling water from the craters. It's a last standing frontier in the Western and modern world that we know of. The endless world out there full of storytelling like no other place. What are the opportunities? A small child with closed eyes thinking about where can I go next? What story can I tell next? What story can I be embraced with? Storytelling is all about that. This picture for me stands out as a great metaphor for my life in the film industry and how I see the connection between storytelling and the opportunity to tell what you are meant to tell. My name is Tina Jönt Christensen and I'm the host of Danish Originals, a podcast series created in partnership with the National Gallery of Denmark and the American Friends of the National Gallery of Denmark. Our goal is to celebrate Danish creatives who've made a significant mark in the US. Today our guest is Kim Magnussen, a Danish producer and entertainment executive. Welcome, Kim. Thank you. It's very nice to have you here. You recently went to the Oscar luncheon at the Beverly Hilton Hotel, actually the hotel where my company celebrates the Golden Globes, so I know the intimate ballroom that you went to very well. At this event, you had a picture taken with all the other Oscar nominees on stage. Everyone is called up, one after the other, and then you all smile to the camera. What is this moment like? Describe this very special group photo to us. Martin Scorsese is then Carrie Mulligan, for instance, in the room. For the 2024 Oscars, I was not the designated nominee for our film, With that was another producer called Christian Norlik and the director Lasse Noor, younger filmmakers from Jotland in Aarhus who made their first fiction film and have come all the way to the Oscars. So that is an amazing moment. And I can talk to that moment because I've been on that stage seven times myself before and have an additional five other films that has been nominated that I produced. It was my 12th time at the luncheon. It is a special moment every time you go there. Because I always say to people, and especially here also with my fellow filmmakers on this film, I said, you just have to enjoy this moment and you have to enjoy it in full because the Oscar luncheon is the best event around the Oscar ceremony. Everybody in that room together with fellow nominees, there's a lot of what people say in Hollywood, a lot of love in the room because everybody is nominated together. Robert Downey, Ryan Gosling, they're all like, nominated along with a short filmmaker from Denmark their first time. So they're in the same boat. They're equally nominated. And that's what that whole luncheon is really about, to embrace the filmmakers and their craft. They're all winners on that stage, specifically on that picture. In the room, you have drinks, you take photos, you talk to people, and then you eat. And I, re I remember one year I was nominated. I sat with Michael Mann and Christian Bale. So everybody sits together, no matter what kind of category you're in. People clap when your name is mentioned, then you go up there. And that class photo, of course, is something that you want to have on your walls for the rest of your life. Everybody's smiling and everybody's there. In that one single moment, they're all Oscar winners in a way. 
And the reason you were there is that your film is nominated, Night of Fortune, or Rider Lykke, as it's called in Danish. It's a short film that was directed by Les Noor. It's not the first time that you're nominated, actually, far from it. This is your eighth nomination, right, where you are actually named. As I said before, this one I'm not named because there's a rule at the Academy that you can only be two designated nominees. It was Les and Christian who came to me with this story since they were in high school, worked their way up and they have their company together and made a call for short films in Jutland at the West Danske Filmpolje or the West Danish Film uh, Fund where we were selecting four pieces of work that needed to get financed. And I was the head of that committee to spearhead which four films. And it was a call for short films with Oscar potential. That was the setting of the call. And this one I very early saw that I felt could go all the way. That got selected along with three other great films. That was my job with the fund. But then I teamed up with Les and Christian to work closely with this all the way through to where we are today. So for that, it was a full collaboration. But of course, I felt that three-sentence uh, pitch, they came to me maybe four years ago, or not to me, but to the committee. I said that could go all the way. So I was right. Here we are. <laughs> Yes, you are right. And you have a special eye for this. What do you see in a film and think, ah, this could go all the way? And what is the recipe of actually getting nominated, apart from all the campaigning that you do that people maybe do not know about it? What is it that you see in a film that makes you think it can go all the way? I don't know. And a lot of people always ask me that and say, oh, you're here again. And how can you do this over and over? And uh, there's, you must be doing something. And, and I said, listen, you, and I always say this, and I have to say that as a disclaimer, because it is, you can only go to the Oscars if you make a great film. Yes, there's campaigning and all that. And we'll talk about that. But as a foundation, you have to have a good film. And then you can work with that from there on. And in my mind, the pitch line for me had a lot of those elements that I feel is a good film or what I want to see as a member of the Academy. And if I was good to vote for something that, you know, feelings that I feel comes close to my heart. And this is about grief and sorrow, but it's also very humorous. When I talk to young filmmakers and talk about short films and how to start and how to tell your story, I always say, if you can twist your story with a humorous way, then you're really far along. In my mind, because I think the short film medium compared to feature film is something totally different. You have to have a, a quick first act, which basically is the first scene getting into the film. So the setting is done and then you have a long second act and then you have a third act which maybe only lasts 10 seconds, which is sometimes just a payoff. And if you can do that payoff with a kind of humor in it, it just stands with people. So if I look at some of the early short films we did with Anders Thomas Jensen, we had those same things, a quick start, the long middle, and then you might have just one sentence that was the, the payoff. And that got people to think, and it was always humorish. His way of filmmaking has humor in it for sure. And I feel humor is really there to tell stories in a lighter way, but without dismissing the story's values or the whole complex behind a story. For example, here with Night of Fortune, and you talked about campaigning before, so part of getting there is get it to the festivals, a certain list of festivals around the world. If you win the main prize there, you're automatically qualified to put your film into the Oscars for consideration 
or you can do a theatrical run in the cinemas here in America, in some of the major cities, and then you can qualify that way. And then you're considered approximately between 175 and 200 films during the last maybe five, six years is the average amount of short films considered by Academy voters to go to first shortlist and then to nominations. And then you do campaigning and you try to get your film out there to people. And that can cost a lot of money and short films for sure don't have any money. And as a producer, you don't make money on short films per se. So it's basically all your own investment and whoever you can get to help you pay for some of this. Uh, and that's very little out of uh, the Danish funding bodies because they don't believe in short films anymore like they did in the old days. So you're basically on your own if you get shortlisted. And then you get a little grant. And if you get nominated, you get another grant. Not as much as the feature films, even though I'm trying to tell them. Listen, it's the same email blast. It's the same ads in variety. It's the same plane tickets. It's the same hotel rentals. It's the same car rental, being a feature film or being a short film. But no, we get a third of the amount of a feature film to support. And I understand that they can't give money before you're shortlisted because then young filmmakers will come and say, oh, I'm taking my film to the Oscars. And then who should then select if that film is good enough or not? I do understand the problem about not having pre-support because that will then let be on the producer side and take that chance. So coming back to your original question about what it is and what kind of themes and all that. So for me, some of those themes are apart from humor, grief and sorrow and sickness and children and things close to my heart. So I think that when I read that synopsis, I felt warmth around my heart when I felt something there. And that was my initial thing to say, okay, this one I think can do something. And my next question is about that because Night of Fortune is a film about grief and how to deal with grief, the leading characters are elderly men who lost their wives and it takes place at the morgue. Talk a little bit about why you said it appealed to you. Why did this script and this story appeal so much to you that you wanted to produce it? I lost my mother almost 10 years ago now, very early to cancer. And I think everybody lost out there. It could be a girlfriend, a boyfriend, your mom, your dad, your loved ones, whoever. And sometimes it comes too early. Sometimes it's natural, comes later, whatever. But I do feel there will be a sorrow for that somehow. In this film, you have two lonely men that have nobody else. We see them forming a relationship and warmth and love between them. And I hope that by the time that the film is over, you feel and hope that they are going to have a future together as some kind of friendship and dealing with that sorrow that they both have been through. I'm not going to give too much away for the audience. If they haven't seen it, they should go and see it. In Denmark, you can see it at TV2 Play. And in America, you can see it at the New Yorker's uh, screening site. I don't know if you're allowed to say that on this podcast. but Yes, you are. So I feel that is great. If you lose somebody, that you have somebody to lean into, that you have somebody that can help you. I had that when I lost my mother, but some can be standing all alone. And then I also think, and that's maybe it's a Danish thing, and that, that had nothing to do with wanting to do this film. But as a side note, actually, last year, I saw this in the news that Denmark has a really, really high percentage of loneliness, especially between men. I think in Denmark, we have like 600,000 registered lonely people, which means 10% of the country. And now the government is putting a big effort to lower that to half. And then just think 600,000, and that was mostly men. 
sitting out there and don't know what to do. Maybe they lost somebody. Maybe they just never found love. Maybe they just became lonely souls and lost their jobs or whatever, and then they just sit there. The film hopefully can start conversations with a film overshoot. Coming back to the humor thing, sometimes when we've been campaigning with this and been showing at events, the, the presenter sometimes says, this is a comedy, so you're allowed to laugh. Because, okay, is this too morbid to begin to laugh? But it takes place in a morgue. Then as soon as you feel the audience let loose, you really have strong reactions. And I remember at the first time we screened it at a big international film festival in France called Clément Ferrand. There was somebody who came up to the director and said, I've never both laughed and cried at the same time. Now I'm going to call my grandmother who just lost her husband. And that's what's amazing. Those kind of reactions from audiences that really takes this in and it makes something for them to cope with and open up for something. Yeah, that's very important. Sounds like a special moment. The first time you were nominated was in 1997 with Ernst & Lüse, directed by the now highly prolific writer and director, Anders Thomas Jensen. I assume this was a special moment in your career. What is the first time that you get nominated to an Oscar like? That was uh, an amazing moment in both my career and also Anders Thomas's career, I think. And that was actually one of those films I just talked about before, about the humor and about him. I didn't know you were going to ask about him. So that was great. It followed into that because that was, for those who remember Ernst and the Light, it was like a five-second third act when he calls his girlfriend and tells about what have just happened to him. And it was just like that quirky moment where you say, oh my God, and that just tells something. In those days, there was no dates when it was announced. We just got an email, oh, you're going to be nominated to the Oscars. And I was on my way to go skiing. When I was young, we were 20 something. There was a whole fuss about that year and that movie because everybody loved our movie and everybody wanted us to win the Academy Awards. But it went to DreamWorks, who had put in a TV pilot, a drop TV pilot for ABC with big stars in it, a huge budget, and everybody was standing there on the train and I was called up, I think it was the New York Post. What are you going to do? You're going to sue the Academy. And I said, well, what's happening? DreamWorks, they put in this film. And I said, no, listen, I was very happy being nominated. And if it's with DreamWorks, I'm even more proud. But eventually it actually changed the Academy bylaws that you cannot put in a drop TV pilot or any other format, not intended for short filmmaking. It's very typical that they think about suing right away. That's not like a Danish concept. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any special moments or anecdotes from being at the Oscars? Any sort of favorite personal Oscar moments that you want to share with us? <laughs> As you said earlier, I've been there a couple of times. We've been nominated with 12 films. Personally, I've been nominated seven times, won twice, and we won two additional Oscars altogether. So four altogether out of the 12 so far. We never know what happens with this 12 coming March 10 in a couple of weeks. But of course, standing on stage with my own Oscar, those two times that happened, is very special. It was kind of surreal for the first one. We were young and it was like, oh, great, we did these three films in a row after Ernst and uh, the Light. Then uh, me and Anders Thomas Jensen was nominated three years in a row right after each other at that time and eventually won with election night in 99. And that was, of course, amazing because it was after that build up we did with Anders Thomas and then we went straight into doing Flickering Lights in Denmark and other of his uh, feature films. 
winning with Anders Walter in 2014 for a film called Helium. That was very special in my life because at that time, as I talked about earlier, my mom was actually in the hospital watching this and she never came out at that point. And I remember that and, and standing and giving it to her and, and she had seen it. She reacted to it and we talked, but um, sadly she passed a couple of months later. And that film was also about death, about a small boy dying and going to Helium, which was this imaginary world for dead people and all that. So my mom being in the hospital and Helium and all that, it just it was just a lot of very personal emotional things right around that to stand there on stage and honor her with this. And she always meant and still means everything in my life. So that was a, a, a big moment. And then, of course, then there's a typical Oscar moments. I've been there through them all. I've been there when uh, Benini ran yeah. on all the chairs down to the stage. I've been there where the envelope was the wrong envelope. We were nominated that year as well. La La Land and Moonlight. La La Land and Moonlight moment. And I was also there for the slap. So I've been there through all the big moments and we were nominated those years. You are the co-founder and head of creatives at Scandinavian Film Fund and Scandinavian Film Distribution, which launched in March 2020. What do these companies do? Scandinavian Film Distribution is a pan-Scandinavian distribution company, just like Nordic Film, Scanbox, and SF Studios, having outlets in all three Scandinavian countries. We also did have Finland, but are now going with third partners in Finland for those films that we invested in there. Where we are a little different from the others are we, are, we call ourselves a producer-oriented boutique distribution company, which means that we're only working with local titles, we are not buying American, French, Italian, English films to distribute. We are focusing on a small amount of films only in the Scandinavian language. And so far, we invested in almost 40 films. And we've had a release of, I think, 18 of them. Or maybe there's a lot of them coming out right now and the rest of this year. And then the rest in the following years. The fund itself made out of private investors. It's basically the money behind the distribution commitments that we do. What the distribution company does is buy the rights to distribute a film. You give the producer a certain amount of money for the film, and then you get the rights to distribute it, and you take it out to the market, theatrical, streaming, video on demand, DVDs actually are still being bought, physical DVDs, and then for that you make a little profit, hopefully, if you're doing well. And if the film is selling well, and then you get paid back your money with interest, that's basically how the mechanics behind the distribution company works. And you mentioned that you've uh, produced a lot of feature films too, as Thomas Jensen's film, among others, and recently Christian Lohliger's The Kate Dynasty, Kreefabriken in Danish. What are the differences between producing a short and a feature film? They're quite different beasts, I assume. Because as you mentioned, there's no money in the short films. <laughs> Thank you for asking that because it is a great question. And people are like, oh, you have no money. Why do you keep on doing the shorts? And I do the shorts because that's where you find new talent. And new talent needs to do shorts to prove themselves in order to get the findings for a feature film. At least 99 times out of 100 is how that should go. And also how our support scheme in Denmark and the Nordics and Northern Europe and 
basically also everywhere else in the world, there's very few people who wants to give somebody money if they can't see what that person have done uh, before. So basically, yes, it's the same in a way. It's just a much longer shoot on feature films, of course. But what it is for me when I talk about those things is the feature films becomes a commodity. It becomes something that you have to sell. It becomes something that you have to make sure can sell. And that means that you will have to take actions on the film to make that happen. With a short, you have the freedom to express exactly what you want to express as a filmmaker because there's basically no money in it. Or at least we're not doing any of the shorts to try to make money. But when you do a feature film, you have to work around what is it out there? How can we sell this film? How is it sellable? Yeah, you can have an art house film that maybe doesn't sell a lot, which is a great film. And I've done some of those as well, of course. But then at least the mechanics around saying, okay, this film is only going to reach a certain and small amount of people. But then we have to make sure that at least that certain and small amount of people are going to see it. And then we're going to find whatever it takes to get them in there. That means that the creative aspects of a film making process has to compromise sometimes in order to honor the economics behind feature filmmaking, because that is economics. You have producers who put up a lot of their own money that they're risking on this person in hope that they're getting a return. And it's not always a return, I can tell you. And that's how it goes with a producer. It goes up and down as a roller coaster ride. And that's why we're all crazy in this business, because it is a crazy business. What was it like producing The Cake Factory, which I just mentioned with the director, Christian Lohlige, who's known for his theater production in Denmark, and it was his debut film as a director. Is it harder with a newcomer to the business? And it was a kind of provocative satire criticizing the Danes for their prejudice. What made you want to produce this? It was actually when we started uh, the Scandinavian Film Distribution Company, one of the other people behind it, Michael Fleischer, found this project. It came out of Christian's own play in the theater, also named the Cake Dynasty or the Kaferbrecken at the time. So he found that, but very quickly it became me who was going to produce it. And of course, Christian was that 1% that makes a film without making a short film. So he came straight from theater and making a feature film. There was a couple of uh, things the Danish Film Institute needed to see that he could interact on a film basis, not only on a theater basis, but of course, being who he was in the theater world, everybody knew that that's okay. You honor that. And then consulting editor at the Danish Film Institute says, I want to see a film from him. He was, I have to say, one of the most fantastic filmmakers I've ever worked with. He was listening, he understood, and at the same time, he stood tall on some of his things that he needed. You're also coming into a person who you need to have such respect for, for what he's been doing in the theater world. So it is right away a great collaboration. He's also a grown man. It's not like you're talking to a 25-year-old who just came out of film school and is doing a short film and then, oh, I want to do a feature, and then they think they can walk on water. He also understands that. So he was very humble, and he took in the filmmaking process and leaned on me and the other producer, my and Michael, and 
especially the cinematographer and some other technical crew. So for him, he was concentrating on the actors and of course has a vision how it should look. So very early on, when that vision was laid down with him and the production designer and cinematographer and all that and us, then it, it was one of the nicest and easiest shoot I've ever been to. And the provocative things, I just think that's great. I love making movies that gets people to talk. I said it earlier in one of the questions. That's really something for me. If you can have somebody come out of the theater and talk about the film, then you really have done something great. So with the Cake Dynasty, it was a really great collaborative process. And I was never in doubt that he could lift that thing. I saw the title, The Cake Dynasty, as meaning Denmark, as referring to Denmark as a society. Is that observation right from your point of view? I never thought about that. Now when you say it, I think maybe it's also because you're here and maybe look at Denmark in another way. No, but I'm saying it's, it's a clever look, a clever look. And I, But I've never talked about it. And of course, maybe you're totally right. We talked about how Danes look at these couple of things that we deal with. The others or the strangers or Podensk, the Frammel, and then also this whole body shaming and all those things. And of course, that is elements in our society right now, which is big topics. I never took it up as a as cake Denmark. Or yes, it's two major concerns in our society. So for you to look at it as a, a whole, I think you're totally right. We just looked at it as the two elements that really are something in Denmark that we need to talk about. Let's go back in time. Uh, you started as a child actor in the film Kvinnesin. Yeah. It's from 1980. Does it have an English title? I don't think so. How would you translate it? I think maybe it did have an English heart of something. I can't remember what it was about. Maybe we can call it as the soul of women? Yeah, something like that. Something like that. Um, you had a few lines in this film. Yes. What made this experience spark an interest in filmmaking in you? And how did you go from there to make a career out of it? I mean, you were very young at the time, but, you know. <laughs> My father was a producer, so film has always been with me. In the film, I'm playing the son of Lotte Tapp, the Danish actress, and Peter Skrøder. And it's a triangle drama about an American man who comes to Denmark. She falls in love with him and he falls in love with her. So there's a conflict. Should she leave the family for this other man? And of course, if there's a child, you have to think about it a little more than just leaving whoever it is for another man or women. So that was my part in there. And I, I believe that people felt I looked totally like a lot of top, which I did, especially because I had all light hair and my mom had all dark hair. I looked more like Lotte Tapp than I looked like my own mother, some people would say. So I think I got that because Nina Krone, the producer, knew me and, and so I was a bit cast for that. I think I have two, three scenes in it, a couple of lines like you just said. And I remember for the money I earned, I, I bought my first camera, my Estelle camera and Nikon FM2. I've always been drawn to media. My father was a producer. He had been a distributor. And then it went into producing. And so, of course, I was part of it all the time. I was at Palace and watching all the films after school and things like that. So it just came natural after school that I was coming into this industry, even though I actually tried to get out of it because the way that, that the industry in Denmark works is, at least at that time, back in the 80s, it was a very small industry. So if you were somebody's son or daughter, it was hard to get a job. If they gave you the job, people would look at you like, why should we have the 
producer's son here or the head of the studio's son here or something like that. So you're really looked at as, okay, can you please get out of here? I think I always talk about that. I had to work double hard. I remember in the first films when I became a production assistant, my dad always told me, Kim, if I hear anything, the slightest bad thing about you, you're out. Because he couldn't just cover for me because I was the son. But it also made me work twice as hard and never sit down, which was great for my career because then people began to respect what you were doing and not just because you were somebody's son that you would be on set, right? But I actually did try to get out of it with a couple of stints first. I always wanted to be a pilot all the way back, not just like a fireman or police when you were two years old, but I actually did go all the way to the test and everything, but didn't come all the way through. They said I was colorblind, but I wasn't. So that ended my career in the military there. But I was ready to go to the military, become a fighter pilot for 10 years, and then go and sit and, and run a, a SAS commercial airlines. That was my dream. Looking back now, I'm probably happy that I didn't do that, but I would actually love to be a pilot. And then at one time, I wanted to keep, be a chiropractor, but that was more maybe I wanted to get out of Denmark and go and do education in a foreign country. I went straight from school, gymnasium, military. I got drafted, so into the military, and then straight into films like the weekend after the military. I never had that get out of here and, and just try and see the world as a young film person. So that happened later. I eventually went and studied in the in the States. What motivates you in terms of filmmaking? What drives you? And how much as a producer are you in the creative process? Some very much, some less so. I feel as a producer, I tend to be very cre uh, involved and be as creative as I can. And I do believe that's the whole thing about producing is that you find your working relationship with especially a director but also a writer. And that's, of course, the norm, you know, the triangle of happiness in the filmmaking process, producer, director, writer. And sometimes that can go well. Sometimes it doesn't go well. Sometimes you become more like a financial producer. If it's a project that has to find a way to get produced, then you can involve yourself like that. I've never really done that. And maybe when I was the CEO of Nordisk Productions at one point, There, of course, you would have a little more arm length to the project. There, of course, not a project that greenlit that I wasn't behind, but of course, I was not physically and emotionally in it like I would be on my films as M&M, my production company, as a producer, because there you're both hands-on and you're owning the companies, all your money was at stake and all that. Of course, you also dealt with that at Nordisk because if it didn't go well, I would get fired. But still, you had producers who had a relationship with the directors and you would support the producers and you would be the second in line for the creative process there. I always tend to go in very much in editing. I feel that's a stronghold for me. On my own films, I'm there all the time. From the beginning, I'm on set. I love being on set. A lot of producers don't like that. I love being there because I started out working on sets so i know every aspect of the set i always joke i could go and replace everybody on the on, on the crew and whatever they're doing except for maybe focus pulling on the camera i also feel like people respect that i have that knowledge so i do know what's going on because a lot of people are afraid of sets because the people who are producers who are getting educated now many of them have never been on sets producers you know these days are more t coming 
from film school, they're coming from the university film school, apart from being hands-on producer like me. I started on sets and worked my way up. And then I took an education in the States as a producer, but that was for me more like a built on, I wanted to have a paper on what I was doing. At that time, I had already done it, but it was for me to get proof that I've done it and learn more about film history and all those kind of things. But a lot of producers now coming from film school has never really been on set. And that's why I love the set because I know what's going on. It's not that I'm standing by the camera all the time, but then if we're, you know, on location, I put myself up in a little office, have my walkie-talkie so I can hear what's going on and feel the flow because I feel as a producer, especially a creative producer, if you're out there and you feel what's going on, then you can also be part of the process if something went wrong. So you're much more aware of what material has come in. When you go in the editing phase, you also remember that, oh, didn't we have a shot? Let's try to pull that in or something like that. Of course, you can see that if you're sitting in the office as an office producer and watch dailies and all that. But I just feel like for me, being on set and being part of that process is very important. And right now, we're sitting in a house very close to the Dolby Theater. We are in Hollywood. You used to live in Los Angeles, and you have a special relationship to this city, I believe. Can you talk a little bit about that, your years here in this fantastic film community city? Yeah. I lived in Los Angeles over a couple of periods in my life. There was one when I was young, and I was here just a year, back and forth, tourist being here. And then that was three years when I went to school at the AFI, where I took my producing degree. And there I was more settled with a house and a dog and a wife, now my ex-wife. And we had a great time here. We were young and we you know, got to learn the city. And then I'd been here later in my life, also for three years in a row with my current wife, Rebecca, and our two kids. After I left Nordisk, because that was at a time where the Danish film industry, the Nordic film industry, a lot of the European uh, young filmmakers moved to America to try their next wave. There's been these waves from Nordic cinema, if you can say so, and, and the influence into the US. After Dogma came out, you had the first wave where International films was being financed from the independent financing scheme of the U.S. Good Machine, October films, all the early independents, pre-Miramax and all that. Miramax was also involved in some of the films back in the days. But there, the filmmakers stayed home in Europe and Denmark and made their films there. But that was that generation. They said, we don't want to go to America. They can give us our, their money and we'll make our films back home. But then the next generation, I think the generation that we're looking in now, the one that's forming our industry per se and forming the creative people out there, that is what the Americans wants to work with. They all came in the early 10s, 10, 11, 12. A lot of them came here. And I was part of that because that was my people that I grew up with. It was some of the talent that I had worked with both at M&M, but also especially at Nordisk. And at that time, I needed to reinvent myself and become a producer again. And I had that view on saying, okay, I want to be more international based than being in Denmark. So I invested in being here those three years. Rebecca and I, we had those two small kids and uh, we went back and forth. We couldn't afford to be here full three years, but we came most of the winters and most of the year. 
to be here with those filmmakers and to shop around, as it's called, projects with those filmmakers and taking the Nordic scene into the U.S. And what are the challenges of doing that? The challenge is that you knock on every door and you get a no like everybody else. But what I love about L.A. or Hollywood, and now I'm not talking about the part of L.A. called Hollywood, but I'm talking about Hollywood as a business, there's always another door. Denmark and the Scandinavian financing community is really closed if you get a no from the film institutes. There will be film made without the film institute, but it's very few and it's very demanding. Here in America, there's a new door. You can keep on going. And that is probably also the American dream, right? But I also do feel like going in Hollywood and knocking on doors, trying to get your filmmaker or your project seen, having meetings and meetings, and the no's, of course, always there. And a few times there's a yes. But that's also the great thing about here is like somebody will say no to you, but they will say, well, why don't you go into those companies? Because in Hollywood or in, in the US, the film industry is very much aligned up, very much somebody wants to do that kind of films. Where in the Nordic, we are more flying all over because the way that the film institutes are set up with a consulting editor with taste you have to find in order to get financing, right? And those consulting editors are being exchanged once in a while. So suddenly you went from consulting editors who only want to see dramas, then there's somebody who only want to see comedies or somebody don't want you to have a gun in their films, other wants to have a lot of violence in their films. So suddenly you have to shift and be ready to have those projects that will be in demand. Here is a little the other way around. You can have your project, you can have your thriller and then you can knock on doors and then there will be companies who don't want to do thrillers, but they'll say, oh, why don't you go to this? They're looking for this kind of material. So I think that's also that openness there is to the business about sharing and it's something great. And then, of course, after those three years, and as Thomas has to do his fourth feature after 10 years absence from directing chair, he was doing Men and Chicken. So I was doing that back in Europe. And then we won the Oscar for Helium. And then on the back of that, and because I've just done those three years of trying to work the industry here and things like that, that helped that we could right away, as Walter and I, go in and become something here. So we would take meetings, and eventually that led to that we did an American movie called I Kill Giants, where, of course, I spent a lot of time here. It ended up shooting in Ireland and Belgium for financing purposes, and we did the post-production in Denmark and all that. So it became more European-based film, but it was still an American film, big American producers on it, production companies behind it. Then kids was older, school happened, and the thing about staying here, a lot of the creative talents also went home. They did it. They made everything, but also found out that they could be at home and still be a part of the industry, even though they were based back home. And that happened for me. And then I signed a two-year deal with Netflix in, in 18 that led into 20 when it started Scandinavian Film Distribution. That has been my quick route in my life. But I do love Los Angeles and it has a special meaning to my heart. How important is Danish filmmaking, and let's include TV series too, in terms of representing Danish culture abroad, especially in the U.S. since we are here? That whole movement that came 10, 12 years ago is the filmmakers that we are seeing today. They are the ones who are representing Denmark on the international film and TV scene. And that's huge. And of course, many more has come true since then, because after Netflix and then later the rest of the streamers opened up offices in the Nordics or all of Europe, 
it has become maybe a countryless world of filmmaking because everything is produced locally or if it's not produced locally, it doesn't matter. Then it's produced somewhere else in the world. But the film studios, you can say in America, that used to be the seven film studios that we know of, has turned into five studios where the biggest, of course, is Netflix. So if you do a Netflix movie in Denmark, it's like doing a Netflix movie in America. It is different, of course. There's one in Danish, one is in English. But it means that the film community in the Nordics really has a very good uh, reputation. People still love to work with us. You have, of course, a handful of filmmakers who can do whatever they want around the world. Susanne Beer, Tobias Lenham, some of those can do that. They're doing it already. For them, the home turf is wherever the project takes them, right? But it also goes into, do they want to be there or not? Somebody came here, somebody did good, somebody failed, went back, reinventing themselves now with great films, and then they will still be looked at. Coming back to the Oscars again to, to make the whole circle there, Denmark on the international feature scene in that category is the most awarded nation in the last 20 years. We literally have, I think, what, 11 shortlist or something in that category in the last 20 years or something. And we have, what, seven nominations and two wins or something in the last 20 years in that category. It's crazy numbers. The last time France was nominated was 1999. It's crazy. And people don't realize how an effect that is when you come to the Oscar race in that category. Denmark is 30, 40% out of the gate ahead of everybody else. And then, of course, Sweden have come there, stepped out a little, come in again. And then, of course, Norway has been very strong lately. And also Iceland and Finland. Look at just the last two, three years. There's been nominations from every single country, or at least shortlist, not nomination, but shortlist from every single country, right? It's crazy that such a little region of the world, but it comes back to that we are great storytellers in the North. We have that darkness in our head because of the dark skies at night when the wintertime and all that, that have made all these great creative people to sit and tell stories. And that's what it's all about, with storytelling. And then on top of that, that we all speak fluently English, or at least some kind of fluently English, that means that we're very accessible for the studios and for the agents and the financiers because you can have meetings. I remember when I was doing some of those rounds back then, people loved us because that was right after the first Korean wave of filmmakers. And they were talking to agents. They would say, oh, this is so nice. We can talk to you. Because normally they would have meetings with South Koreans with an interpreter. They could see that they, the filmmakers had passion and could do something and they want to work with them, but it still had to be translated all the time. And the South Koreans make fantastic movies. <laughs> no, 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 do. And now there's a whole new thing and now the South Koreans can speak English. The first wave was they couldn't do it. My final question for you is, what is the recipe for your success making it in Denmark, making it in Scandinavia, making it around the world and in the US? What would you tell young people who want to know, how do you succeed? Hard work, if you have to say it in a small sentence. And I know that's a very ordinary answer in every single field of work, I think. But I do believe that if you're a hard worker, you will be successful. And then what is success, right? Yes, I've been very fortunate in our industry 
Success can be so many things. And for me and for a young filmmaker, the first success you need to get is to get your first film out there. So I think if you work hard for that and it succeeds, then you want to work more. And I've just been that person that cannot say no. I always tell people that in my tombstone, it will say the guy who couldn't say no. And that's probably led to some of these successes because, you know, I've been very open and getting all these young filmmakers because of the track history that we began to make. And when we early on started M&M production, it became called the Alternative Film School. People did come to us and we opened our doors and I would do films with people that I'm not going to work with again for sure, but at the time said, oh, maybe that can work and oh, let's just try it and oh, let's just do and see. And then you kind of try to go through life and hopefully you take some of the right choices with some filmmakers or whatever it is in your life of choices you make, right? Both personally and business-wise. And then that leads to hopefully some kind of success. People say I've had success, but I also had years where I didn't know how to pay my rent and pay my food on the table and things like that because it is a struggle. And being a producer is not just glory. It is really hard work. And I think that's coming back. The answer is just hard work. <laughs> Thank you for saying that too, that it's not just easy because, you know, we're sitting here with an Oscar nominee. And <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, Kim. We appreciate it. And we're very happy to be here in the Hollywood Hills. Thank you for having me. For today's episode, Kim Magnusson chose Olafur Eliasson's Iceland series from 1995 from the collection of the National Gallery of Denmark. You've been listening to Danish Originals, a podcast series created in partnership with American Friends of the National Gallery of Denmark and the National Gallery of Denmark. This series is sponsored by Studio Haslund. I'm your host, Tina Jung Christensen. This podcast is directed by Christian Diebrun and produced by Theresa Lai and May 11 Projects. Original music by Joachim Smar, executive produced by Christian Diebrun and Tina Jung Christensen. Please subscribe to Danish Originals wherever you get your podcasts, share it with others, leave a review, find us on danishoriginals.com and follow us on AFSMK's Instagram and Facebook. Last but not least, we invite you to donate to the American Friends of Statens Museum for Kunst and become a patron. We will see you next week.